Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Thanks for having me. Um, it is kind of strange to be here in person. This is only the third time I've made it to a real church service on account of my small children. Um, so pray for my wife, uh, wrestling them at home on her own. Um, I want to ask you, as we start, and thank you, uh, Simon, if you've gone for reading for us. Um, I want to ask you, who provides for you? Who meets your needs? Who or what do you trust to give you what you need for your life? And today we're celebrating harvest. It's all about God's provision. Um, When I was a kid, uh, we'd come to church at harvest with a tin of beans. And as was appropriate for my age, I carried the tin of beans up the middle and I left it at the front while everyone else sang, we plough the fields and scatter. And I always thought that was a bit strange because no one, so far as I was aware, at my church in London or in Maidstone had ever ploughed a field. Um, And scatter was what you did when the teacher found out what you were up to. And harvest is not just, is it? It's not just about giving tins of beans to a food bank or pretending that we understand farming. Some of you probably do. I don't. Um, Essentially, harvest is a recognition that the food we have didn't start its life in Sainsbury's. Before they sold my mum that tin of beans I carried up the middle of church, someone put them in a tin, someone else picked them, someone else planted them and watered them. But God made the sunshine. God sent the rain. God made my beans grow. Harvest Festival is a recognition that we rely on God. We rely on God. And for more than just food, But let me ask you this morning, do you really believe that? I mean, do you believe it? Do you live like you believe it? Maybe you think it's true in your head, but is that what shapes how you live your life? Or do you think, do we think we're doing it ourselves? Maybe God is there, maybe he's not, but I've done all right. I've worked hard. That's why I have two cars. That's why I can afford an extension and I have a kitchen island. That's why my kids will have nice Christmas presents. My hard work, my effort, my job, my ability, my wisdom. These are what have got me where I am. Or maybe you think if God is there and if God provides and you're not sure, I don't seem to be getting any. Where's mine? Why aren't you helping me, God? What am I going to tell the kids when we can't have Christmas 
like their friends can. If you provide God, why do I feel so lost, so alone? You know, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure God does provide, you think. Or maybe you've got lots of food and lots of money, or not so much food and not so much money, but who cares? That hasn't provided what you need. What does all that money mean now that my mum has died, now that my brother is gone, now that my marriage has broken down, now that my parents are getting divorced? How can God possibly provide for me in that? Who cares if I have beans? Who cares if I have money? It doesn't feel like provision. Sure, maybe God makes beans grow, but what use are beans to me? Well, Psalm 95, which you should have in front of you, is an invitation to come and praise the God who is the great benefactor of the whole world and who provides in creation. It is an invitation to come and worship the one who cares deeply for his people and who provides for them in salvation. And it is a warning that we can find this provision nowhere else. So have a look with me uh, at the first five verses. It's an invitation to come and praise God who provides. He writes, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. The psalmist, uh, if we read the New Testament book of Hebrews, we discover it's King David. He invites us to come. His invitation is, let us sing. He says, let us sing, let us shout, let us come with thanksgiving and music and song. That's a bit awkward. Um, I don't know if anyone has made King David aware of the latest government guidelines and regulations. Um, (laughs) Oops. Uh, and, And yes, of course, he means literally. It's an invitation to sing in real life. We should join with him in singing. And now I'm not suggesting that we should disregard government guidance. I think we should, I think, I don't know what you think, I think we should not sing together for a while to love our neighbour. But it's not like we could join King David in person anyway, is it? He's been dead for 3,000 years. But we can join with praising God, with him, praising God in spirit, even if we can't join with him in person. And we can join with him, praising God, even if for a short while we can't sing together. You can sing in the shower, you can sing at home, you can sing in the car. You can sing, as it were, in your heart, can't you? And you can look forward to the day when you can sing together, here, in person, with that piano. But why? Come, let us do this, but why? Why would you want to praise God? And we don't always, always want to. For, for the Lord is the great God. The great king above all gods. David says the God of Israel is not like other gods, like these other nations have. He is the great king above all of those gods. There's only one like him. There's only one of whom you can say, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. Literally, that means everything down and everything up. 
is in his hands. That's everything, in case you were unclear about that. Everything is his. Only he can truly be called God. He goes on, verse 5, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. If you like, everything wet and everything dry is his. Everything that was made at creation was formed by his hands. The extent and the extremity, the totality of the universe is the work of his hands. Everything is the work of his hands. God is the great benefactor of all people all around the world, all throughout history. That is why we sing to him. That is why we shout. That is why we praise. There would be nothing in Sainsbury's if it were not for God. There would be no farming if it were not for God. There would be no land to do farming to if it were not for God. Even the laws of physics which govern our universe would not be, there would not be a universe but for God. There would have been no tin of beans for me to carry to the front of church and put up the thumb. Well, everyone's saying, plow the fields and scatter, if it were not for God. But we are not just here being invited to praise uh, a distant God who is only defined by his great power. We're being invited as well to come and worship God who cares. Have a look with me at verses 6 and 7. Not only does God provide for his people in all creation, God is providing for his people especially in salvation. Verse 6, David says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And I hope you see the same pattern occurring as before. He says, come. He says, let us, in this case, bow and kneel. And he says, for. It's the same pattern. We're being shown the same God. This time David invites us to come and he says, bow with me, kneel. Submit to God. Worship God. This isn't just about knowing things are true or believing that certain things are real. Or agreeing to the right doctrine so you can impress Chris Tufnell in a conversation over a cup of tea. It's not about knowing stuff, bowing, kneeling. It is a physical demonstration of trust in our provider. And for? Why? Why do we do this? Why do we come to God in worship? Why would we bow before anyone? Why would we bow before God? Well, he's our maker, the idolater bows down to an idol that they have made, which is fairly ridiculous. The Christian bows down to the God who made them. That makes more sense. Yes, he's our maker. Yes, he's created the whole universe. But look, we are his flock. We are God's people. So at that time, the assembly of Israel, today, the Christian church, literally, verse 7 is saying, we are the sheep of his hand. We are the little sheep. He especially puts his hands on on and cares for of all the things God has made and we know now that we can't even see to the edge of that of all the things God has made the thing he particularly cares for the thing he particularly loves is his people we praise God because he provides everything in creation his hands made the depths of the earth and the mountain heights his hands separated the sea from the dry land But we worship 
and we bow down to God because he cares for his people. Because his hand is specially for those he has chosen. We worship God because it was his mighty hand and his outstretched arm that rescued his children out of Egypt. It was his hands that gathered his children back from exile. It was God's gentle hand that, in his son, touched and healed the blind and the sick, that welcomed the little children. We worship him because his hands were pierced with nails so that mine would not have to be. We worship God because God the Son offered up his life, suffering the judgment for my sin and trusting his spirit into the hands of his loving Heavenly Father. The God who provides for us in the creation of everything is the God who gently and tenderly cares for his fragile and broken people. The God who welcomes the wicked and the broken and the helpless. And he offers them salvation through the death of his son. How could I think that I provide for myself in the face of such great power? And how could I think that God doesn't care in the face of such love, such sacrifice? We praise God who provides for us in creation and we worship the God who cares for us in salvation. And the alternative, which we are presented with here, is to reject him, to reject his provision and salvation. There is no fence to sit on. So please turn to verse 7. I say turn to verse 7. It's all on the same page. It's a short psalm. Have a look at verse 7. And this is a warning. David says, don't reject the God who judges. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. And they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is a serious warning. Today, it's David speaking to his people about the people, God's people, in the time of Moses. But these words are written down again and spoken to us again in the book of Hebrews in the first century. And they're spoken to us today too. When Simon read this passage to us, We heard God's voice. He was speaking to us today, the 4th of October, 2020, warning us not to harden our hearts. And what does that mean? Is King David concerned about my cholesterol? Is he worried about how much caffeine I drink? Is King David diagnosing a restrictive cardiomyopathy? And no, I haven't a clue what that means, but I asked a medical friend, and apparently that's when your heart gets physically hard and it stops working and it's very bad. Um, He's not warning us about those things. What does it mean? He is warning us not to doubt God's power and his goodness in providing for his people. 
He is warning us about what God's people have done in the past, about what they did at Meribah and Massa. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what did they do at Meribah and Massa? Fair question. It's in the desert. They've just been rescued, God's people, from Egypt, where they were slaves with mighty miracles. God has crushed Egypt, the country that had enslaved his people. He sent these 10 terrifying plagues. He's led his people out with like pockets full of Egyptian gold. He's been guiding his people as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And then when this massive army of Egyptians chases after them, he protects them, he shields them, he makes a way for them through the sea. The Egyptians chase them, bang, he sorts those guys out. He's provided them with miraculous food in the desert. And now a week or two later, the people are thirsty and they're grumbling. God speaks to Moses. This is Exodus 17, verses 6 and 7. He says to Moses, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for all the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Does God really care? Can he really provide? I don't think so. At Meribah and Massa, they didn't trust God's provision. They were doubting his goodness. They were doubting his care for them. They did not think he could provide water. Is he strong enough? They did not think he wanted to provide water. Does he care about us? And as Psalm 95 verse 9 points out, this was though they had seen what God did. Those at Meribah and Massa had literally seen devastating miracles of judgment. The parting of the Red Sea, the vanquishing of God's enemies. They had been rescued from under that judgment themselves. They had been spared, many of them, by the blood of a lamb painted on wooden posts on their house. And yet they doubted that God would care for them in the deserts. They doubted that God meant good for them. They hardened their hearts. They doubted God's ability and desire to save them. And so, verse 10, For 40 years, God says, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And those people did. They faced judgment. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert and almost all of them died there. But for the one or two who had trusted God. And for them, that rest that they didn't enter was Canaan. But when the author to the Hebrews is speaking to Christians in the first century and he quotes the whole thing basically, um, he's talking to people and some of them would quite literally have seen Jesus dying on a cross. They would have seen the blood of the lamb painted on the wooden posts of the cross. Many of them will have seen in real life with their own eyes, Jesus risen from the dead. They have all, all the people he's writing to have heard the good news. They've believed the gospel message and he calls on them in Hebrews. In the same words, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
the author to the Hebrews is saying to the people he's writing to, you've seen God's salvation. You've actually seen it even more clearly than the Israelites did in the desert. But you're not home yet. You've not entered God's rest yet. The promise still stands. The chance still remains. And he says in Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It was true in David's time. It was true in the time of the author to the Hebrews. And it is true today. Almost everyone in this room, I expect, has heard the gospel message. In it, you have seen God's wonderful provision. And let us hold that conviction firm to the end. Brothers and sisters, together, let's enter that rest. It is the hardness of our sinful heart the deceitfulness of our sin. It is the lie of Satan from the beginning that says God doesn't want what is best for you, that he won't provide for you, that he doesn't care about you and that he can't help you. Look to the work of God's hand in creation and praise the one who can provide. Look to God's scarred hands as he provides you with salvation and know Know that he cares for you. And look at what God has done. And today, don't harden your heart. I don't know, you might have more than enough money. You might have a nice car. Uh, you, know, you might have a swanky kitchen with a kitchen island and like more tins of beans than you know what to do with. Secure job, you've got natural talent, good genes, hardworking. And your hard heart might tell you, The deceitfulness of sin might tell you, this is the work of my hands. I can trust in me. And if God did give me this, it's because I earned it. On the other hand, maybe you don't have enough money and maybe you don't feel provided for and you really don't even have enough of the basic things like food, but you still have a hard heart. The deceitfulness of sin might tell you, God can't help me. I'm not sure he's good. I'm not sure he can give me what I need. And perhaps whether or not you have money, regardless of how many tins of beans you own, it's not really the point right now. You look at what's happened in your life, what is gripping hold of you and squeezing, or you think about the people you've lost, their pain or their suffering. You look around you and you see people you care about very much, hurting very much. And your hard heart might tell you, the deceitfulness of sin might tell you, God doesn't care. If he cares, he would deal with it. He'd deal with it on my terms. If he loves me, this would never have happened the way it's happened. And Psalm 95 says, look to the work of God's hands in creation and praise the one who can provide. Look to God's scarred hands, nailed to the cross as he provides you with salvation and know that he cares. And look at what God has done. 
Listen to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And today, don't harden your heart.